Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In some sense, March was the beginning of a different world, a world that ushered in masks and took place largely on Zoom. But in another sense, March marked the moment when certain trends in American life started speeding up a lot. It was like somebody got in a car and just floored it. Now everything has been accelerated by this pandemic. And now institutions who felt like they had a five-year runway have a one or two-year runway. That's the writer Jeff Salingo, who could be talking about the collapse of brick-and-mortar retail or the collapse of in-person offices, but he's not. It's a big sector of the economy. We don't tend to think of colleges as workplaces. We tend to think of them as places that serve students. And when we think of the workplaces, we tend to think of faculty only. We don't think of the staff that work at these institutions. Salingo is the former editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education and the author of the book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. He says, colleges and universities seem to be careening towards a major reckoning. And keep in mind, these are places that have defined many of our lives. Places that push kids to take that tough math class in 10th grade so they can attend the school of their dreams. Places that employ a ton of people, about 4 million Americans, from lawyers to athletic trainers to maintenance workers to entire IT departments. And they're places whose decline could mark the simultaneous decline of so many cities and towns that are built around institutions of higher education. And so we are going to see ripple effects in many of these communities. And what worries me is that in many cities, even cities, uh, so let's take one example of Rochester, New York. Years ago, the largest employer in Rochester were companies we understood, Kodak and Xerox. The largest employer today in Rochester, New York, is the University of Rochester. And that is true at so many college towns and even in more urban areas across this country. They are the center. They're the factory. They are the factory. They are the center of the culture, right? So think about where you go to get most of your culture, you know, museums and shows and also athletics, all that won't necessarily go away, but I think it's going to be much smaller after this pandemic. It's possible, of course, that Salingo's wrong, that higher ed will not be upended, that the pandemic won't change things forever. But if you listen to college students, there are signs of a shift. I mean, I have friends who were already kind of thinking that maybe they wanted to leave college and do something more, you know, like trade school oriented or something like that. And I think with the pandemic and how the college experience is changing, I think a lot of them are going to have more serious conversations. J.J. Conway is a rising junior at Kenyon College in Ohio. And I say rising because he's taking a gap year right now, hoping to ride out a college experience that, at least for the time being, is not quite what he had hoped. Doing a semester remote takes away one of the semesters that you get to be a college student on a college campus. And I have such an opportunity to be at Kenyon College, and the community there is just so different from anything I've ever experienced. So I told myself that, you know, even if I had to do an extra semester, if I couldn't graduate on time, it would still be worth it because, you know, I want to be on campus. Indeed, about 20 percent of Harvard freshmen have also deferred their first year. Like Conway, they wince at the notion of doing college from your teenage bedroom. Kedar Abiyankar is a junior majoring in engineering at Purdue University in Indiana. I know that a lot of people actually are rethinking 
if college is right for them. Um, I have friends of friends who are international students uh, who say that, um, you know, with the current government policies on immigration back in the U.S. and my visa status and everything, it doesn't make sense for me to have to fight to get my education when I might not even get all of it or complete my degree. And my parents paying, you know, 44K a year for me to show up out of the country when if something happens, they can't go back. Why are colleges and universities so vulnerable right now? Well, in part because they were vulnerable a year ago. And that vulnerability comes largely from cost. So over the last few decades, the price of attending a college or university has skyrocketed. Take Notre Dame, though almost any school, public or private, would provide a good example. In 1975, the cost of going to Notre Dame was about $4,000. Tuition, room, board, the whole thing. If that $4,000 cost had increased at the rate of inflation, it would now be about $20,000 to attend Notre Dame. Well, I doubt it's going to shock you to learn. Notre Dame does not cost $20,000. Instead, it's more like $70,000. Kids, parents, everybody, we've been balking at those prices for years. Like Saffron Joy Kraus, who's in her fourth year studying fine arts at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. My mom who is, and my dad, who are in their 50s now, still haven't paid off their student loans. And they would not be able to help me take out student loans to pay for school, and they would not advocate for me to do that. But colleges have been facing more than a cost problem, as significant as that issue has been. So we were heading into a, a dip in the number of high school graduates uh, over the next couple of years. We, we already had our height of high school graduating classes a couple of years ago. By 2025, 2026, we were going to be at some of our lowest points of high school graduates in the, in the U.S., particularly, by the way, in the Northeast, in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, and the Midwest, where a bulk of higher education institutions are. And if sticker shock and a falling number of college students weren't enough, Jeff Salingo says... There's a third problem. The demographics of the kids who are college age, they're changing. Many more students of color, many more low-income students, many more first-generation students, meaning their parents didn't go to college. These are all groups, these are all demographic groups that higher education has, and I think this is an indictment of higher education, has done a horrible job at serving. Adolfo Guzman-Lopez, who covers higher education at the public radio station KPCC in Southern California, says in the last few years, the nation's most populous state had been struggling mightily to meet the needs of its students. And in the last maybe three or four years, one of the big public policy issues, especially in the Cal States, in the community colleges, and to an extent the University of California system, was the significant number of students who were having a hard time paying for food and for housing. I mean, th this discussion about homeless college students and students going hungry. So there, there was a big push there. When COVID hit, the fragile finances of many students were shattered. So students who had jobs and were balancing, you know, going to class and, and holding down jobs, Many of them lost their jobs. Many of them had to, you know, drop their classes in order to get another job, in order to support their families, put food on the table. So they've set their, their studies aside. Which brings us back to the fall of 2020, a fall that isn't how it was supposed to be. A fall when colleges and universities that were already facing rough seas found themselves in the midst of a tsunami. Higher costs, 
fewer 18 and 19-year-olds, and that increasingly troubled match between who they serve and who most needs their help. And Jeff Salingo, the former editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education, says colleges that need some degree of stability keep finding stability is slipping right through their fingers. I don't think anyone pictured that back in you know March and April that we would be online for the fall. And now, of course, everybody's just talking about the fall. Not a lot of people are talking about the spring semester. So it's this idea. What I think is most painful right now is that we tend to be doing planning in week-long or month-long or semester-long uh, segments. And I don't think that's the, a smart way for higher ed to, to move forward through this pandemic. Um, I, as somebody who understands this industry well, who's looked at it for a long, long time, do you think what we're looking at here is the beginning of lasting changes or is this like a blip is this okay it's six months okay it's 12 months but but back to business at some point if you had asked me that question a couple of months ago i would have said it was a blip uh-huh. now that we are getting into a new academic year here and that many colleges and universities are either going to be fully online or mostly in a hybrid form i think this is going to be a bigger change in higher education. I think largely now technology is going to be a force to be reckoned with in higher education. I think that most, particularly 18 to 22 year olds, see their world in a very different way than college leaders see it, meaning that they they don't see a separation between the face-to-face world that they live in every day and the online world that many adults see. They just see it kind of fused together. And I think that's what we're going, that's the lasting change I see coming out of this, is that we're going to move to a world where we don't see online and face-to-face education as two different things, um, but much more of a hybrid where students are going to be mixing and matching between that physical experience that we are so accustomed to and the online or digital experience. Well, it's interesting because you do have schools where kids have moved back, like they are in dorms or they are in off-campus apartments, but they're just sitting in those dorms and on-campus apartments taking online classes because the people who teach the classes maybe or the school doesn't think they don't think it's safe for people to like go to lecture halls. But it's interesting because, I, I mean, in some ways, I do think kids know the difference. Like, they know it's kind of hard to go on a date online. But they know where they know the difference is what matters face-to-face and what doesn't. And I don't think mm. college leaders know that. Okay. So they're largely going back to campus because there's that coming-of-age experience. Right. There are the clubs, the activities, living with somebody and dining with somebody, participating in sports, right? They know those things have to be done in person. But- what they don't think necessarily has to happen in person or at the frequency that it happens are classes, right? There's a lot of stuff that they can watch. In fact, we're already seeing this on college campuses, this idea of flipping the classroom where they would watch videos or do other things in advance and then show up in the physical classroom. And that's where peer-to-peer learning or group learning would happen, discussions would happen that are better face-to-face instead of just seeing a professor lecture to them. And that is the difference here. And what's interesting to me is that we're seeing all of these students flock back to try to live on campus and take online courses or right. even live off campus and take online courses. Because what I think they're saying in, in that action is that we value mm-hmm. the, that coming of age experience, but we don't think it happens inside the walls of a classroom. And that's where I think college officials think it does happen. And in fact, that's what I think they think they're charging tuition for. Um, 
So we actually tracked down a bunch of college kids to get their thoughts on what's happening. Um, I just want to play a clip for you from Ben Greenblatt. Um, he's a sophomore at the University of Maine, and he's talking here about uh, how this has made him sort of rethink the cost of college. I don't know if I should be paying as much money as I am for just being on campus. I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to be getting the full college experience, having seen that as you know, going into a freshman and then I'm coming back now, I know just how different it's going to be. So it would be very nice if I could see the prices adjusted to reflect that, but that's very out of my hands. You know, for colleges that are already not doing great in terms of their amount, of, their cash flow, um, I think there, there's probably a, a sense of concern over that sort of feeling about, well, gee, I really deserve a discount here. So there is a concern because colleges and universities operate on fairly thin margins, but all of their expenses are tied up in the campus-based experience, and a lot of their revenue is tied up in the campus-based experience. And so what they're going to say is we still have to pay our faculty the same salaries we've had to pay, right? And that's where mm. a lot of our cost comes. So just because we're going online doesn't mean we can't we can't cut the salaries of our of our faculty. Right. We still have these enormous infrastructures, meaning campuses, physical campuses, that yes, no one's living there, but we still have to operate in those buildings. So we have all these expenses for the physical infrastructure, and that's what universities are now faced. So it's not that, you know, I asked a university president recently, I said, do you think a 5 to 10% discount on tuition is really what is the campus-based experience? And he said, no, but that's what we can afford. And so I think this part of the problem here is that the cost and price in higher education has never been well aligned. And we are, char you know, the cost of, of higher education is, is huge, but we don't really understand, like, what does it cost to offer English 101 to a student? You know, what does it cost to uh, feed a student for a year? What does it cost to operate that athletics department for that student, right? We, we bundle all of these costs together. We charge students a flat fee. We discount it for some in terms of financial aid. And then that's, that's the way higher education finances have worked for years until this pandemic hits. And now we kind of have to figure out, like, what are students willing to pay for? What value do they place on those different aspects of campus life? And I think it's incumbent now on colleges and universities to start to align their cost structures with what students value. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Jeff Salingo. He's the former editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education. He's also the author of Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. We're going to take a quick break and then we will come back and pick up on some of those very questions like what do students value um, and are colleges and universities about to experience a huge shakeup. You're listening to Innovation Hub from GBH Radio and PRX. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and we're talking about a sector of our economy and really a part of American culture that has been turned upside down by the pandemic, higher education. And the question is, what's going to happen to colleges and universities? So some are teaching in person or in a hybrid format this semester, even though often the elementary schools that surround them are closed. Some colleges have moved fully online. I'm joined by Jeff Salingo, who's the former editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education. 
And I guess I wonder um, if you are sitting in a room, whether it's your dorm room or it's your teenage bedroom, and let's say you're taking a calculus class, you could be taking something like that at Coursera, at edX, at Khan Academy. Um, and those entities have been working for a long time on how you develop a good online education. Is the calculus class that you're you know, taking this semester at XYZ, you know, the college you normally go to, is it going to be a whole lot better than uh, than these online classes? No. And, and normally you're taking Econ 101 because of that professor at that institution yeah. who, by the way, before class and after class, you can meet up with them. You could go to their office hours. I mean, one of the big issues here in online education is that students pick residential campuses, right? So I just worked on this book about admissions. Right. And when you talk to students about how they pick a college, you know, they really pick it for that community and that connectiveness. Uh, and the community also means location. So you have students who decide, I want to go to a rural institution. Mm. I want to go to an urban institution because I want to live in Boston or New York or L.A. or whatever. Or I want to live out in the middle of nowhere. I want to go to a big state university with lots of sports. Or I want to go to a small liberal arts college. Right. Well, what happens when you're taking those courses now from your bedroom? You're not in those locations. You're not in those communities. So now every college is essentially the same. Right. And on top of that, that connectiveness that you would get in the classroom why you're taking Econ 101 at Smith and not Northeastern mm -hmm. or not NYU or mm -hmm. whatever it is, you kind of lose that as well right, because right, Econ right. 101 is essentially the same if you're taking it from your bedroom. And so colleges kind of lose their unique value proposition by being online in this pandemic because you can't be on campus, you can't be in that physical city, that college town, that urban area, and your classes essentially are a commodity now and they look like everything else, and they feel like everything else. Do you think colleges are worried about the quality, actually, of the education they're going to produce? Because, you know, I, I talked about, like, Coursera and edX and Udacity and all these. Well, these companies are in the business of producing good online content, as good as they can make it. Um, but most colleges and universities, they don't put every class online. So I assume they have spent, you know... Uh, some of the summer just scrambling to get, you know, computers and different things in the hands of professors who are like, I've never, what? I've never done oh, this before. I wouldn't before. give them that. <laughs> what, what do I'm you not think? sure I'd give them that much credit. Oh, really? I, 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 and I actually wrote a piece recently for the Chronicle of Higher Education where we spent more money on plexiglass than we did on pedagogy hmm. over the summer. Like when I saw what was happening this summer, like six weeks ago, I started to get really worried because I thought most college leaders were focused way too much on trying to get back to campus in a physical way and all the things that they would have to do, meaning the plexiglass, uh, to, to make that happen. Where the pedagogy, in other words, where, where professors were working on their courses, but it was much more at the grassroots level. It wasn't at the university level in most cases. There are a decent amount of exceptions, but for the most part, college professors said, I, I think I'm going to be online this fall, so I want to make my course better. But there was really no focus at the institutional level right. to make that happen. Right. And so for the most part, it's very hard to put together and teach a very good online course. And could you do that in a summer? Sure. You can make it better than it was in the spring. And I think for the most part, many courses will be better this fall than they were in the spring. Will they be as good as the best designed online courses offered around the world? I don't think so because colleges, I don't think, want to invest in that because they don't want to be, for the most part, they don't want to be online schools because the money, the prestige, everything is caught up 
in that idea of the residential experience. So, I mean, there are parents whose heads are exploding at home thinking like, oh my gosh. So what you're saying is, you know, my kid could take a online econ 101 course uh, for a few hundred dollars that may be better than one that, you know, it's they're not paying individually for the course, but we're paying for this kid to go to a school that is costing like $60,000 this year. Yes. And you're paying that because of that personal experience that, again, meeting the professor for coffee after class. The, which the, you won't the, be doing if the school isn't meeting. Doing, right? right? It's the, you're paying for all that other stuff and you're not getting it. And the problem with, yes, you could find a course for a couple hundred dollars that's probably better. But then if you want it to count towards your degree, you're going to have to persuade your college or university to transfer that credit. And I will tell you that if many college students come to their college and say, hey, I took a leave of absence and I took a bunch of courses at my local community college that were much cheaper, or I took these online courses. Now, can you accept these credits? I don't think many colleges will want to do that Mm -hmm. because they're going to want to capture these students into their ecosystem. So in many ways, parents are stuck. We heard a couple of months ago, all these families saying, well, my son or daughter will take a gap year instead of starting college in the fall, or we're going to take a year off you know, and, and do something else. Well, the question is, what else are you going to do? Uh, you can't really get a job because uh, the job market's pretty tough, especially if somebody doesn't have a college degree. Do right. you really want your son or daughter living at home and doing nothing? If they're going to live at home, you might as well have them taking courses somewhere. Um, And so that's the problem is that parents and students, for the most part, are kind of stuck in the system and they want to keep moving forward because our hope is that, of course, the pandemic will be over. You'll eventually get your college degree and get out into the world. And if you take time off, you're just going to delay that over time. And so I think that's the problem that most parents and students are facing right now. So I feel like what you're saying, if we if we have our eye on what the future looks like in a couple of years that maybe we will just be back to normal in a couple of years, that that kids do, you know, I mean, obviously not every uh, uh, student goes away from home for college, but for the, for the students who do uh, care about the campus and do go live somewhere, that they're, that's not going to change. They're going to want to do that. Colleges are going to probably not c- cut tuition a whole lot. They're going to want to hold out because that is their financial model. And at some point, There will be vaccines or whatever, and people will kind of get back to where we were. No? No. Uh, Well, I think that's what colleges want. Okay. Uh, So I think what we have here is a mismatch between what the consumer wants, meaning the student and the parents. You know, the consumer wants a couple of things out of college. They definitely want it to be less expensive. They potentially want it to be faster or cheaper. They want it to lead to a job and they want it to be a mix of experiences. So they want a digital experience and they want that face-to-face experience. So when we talk about getting back to normal, I think for colleges and universities, normal is 2019. For students, particularly even students of the next couple of years, when you look at Gen Z and what they want out of education and how they consume education, they do want something slightly different. And they want that mix of online and face-to-face experiences. They want something that's less expensive. They want something that leads to a job. And that is the part that I don't think higher education was as focused on as it should have been before the pandemic. I hope that they start to meet students where they are after the pandemic. Do you think they will? Unclear. Uh, I think some of them will have to or else they'll be out of business. Okay. I don't think the elites will because they feel like 
there will always be a market for elite higher education. Uh-huh. And so I, I think we're just going to see much more differentiation in the higher education marketplace. You're going to have the elites who feel like they could do whatever they want. You're going to have a portion of institutions chasing after those elites who feel like they could do and maybe afford to do whatever they want. But then you're going to have a vast market underneath that. And those are the institutions I think are going to have to change to start to meet learners where they are and what they need, at, by the way, at any point in their life, not just at 18 to 22. Because if they don't and they don't transform, I think those are the institutions that we'll see go out of business. So I know that some colleges um, had already kind of basically gone out of business in the in the last few years. When you look out over the next five, 10 years, you think this is going to become a serious problem with colleges just sort of closing up shop. I think this is going to become more serious than I would have even said six months ago, because again, we're going into an academic year that feels like it's going to be largely online. Now, will we see, you know, 25, you know, there's some projections out there, 25%. Scott Galloway has thrown out a number of of very healthy institutions that I don't think will go out of business and, you know, somewhere in the 25 to 30% range. I don't think that's going to happen. First of all, it's very hard to put a college out of business. Uh, They have alumni and in the public sector, they have lawmakers who are really supportive of them. So what I think you're going to see is many more mergers. So local institutions Mm. uh, that can't really survive on their own, and you're going to see them merge together. You're going to see that, I think, at the state level as well. You know, some of the New England and Northeast and Mid-Atlantic and Midwest states have lots of regional public colleges. They can't really maintain all of them. And I think you're going to see some of those merge together or some of them become much more specialized. So you might see certain programs only on certain campuses in a public system rather than everybody has like a, you know, physical therapy or everybody offers English or everybody offers history. If you want to major in history at a University of Massachusetts campus, for example, you're going to have to go to a specific campus rather than go to any one. One wild card that was thrown into this whole college situation as the pandemic has unfolded is that uh, the Trump administration threatened schools that went virtual and said, "Okay, you cannot keep your international students. They then backpedaled on that. But we have seen, you know, I saw an official at Columbia quoted saying in the country at large, we could be looking at something like a 30, 40 percent drop in international students this year. That is projected to have something like a 15 billion dollar impact which feels enormous, right? It is enormous. And this is how many public and private universities made up for cuts either in enrollment or in terms of funding is that they attracted more students from international locations, from foreign countries who were largely going to pay full freight. Uh, And now these students can't get into the country. International enrollment was already starting to um, decline before the pandemic, largely because international students didn't see the U.S. as safe. Uh, You know, all these uh, uh, shootings uh, really uh, made the news uh, overseas. Mm. They didn't see it as safe. Um, They didn't like the rhetoric uh, coming from the White House around uh, around international students, uh, in particular, even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hits and they can't literally can't even get here. Right. Uh, they can't get their visa and they can't get on a plane to, to get here. So this is a problem for colleges and universities that over the last 10 years, largely since the Great Recession, have depended on international students to fill those budget holes. I, that's just going to exasperate all the other issues that we've talked about in terms of state funding and everything else. Again, it's why I worry about those institutions that don't have a diverse revenue stream mm-hmm. to be able to make up for that loss. Um, 
if we had this conversation again in, let's say, five years, what do you think would be different, like markedly different about the higher ed landscape? Uh, I think you're going to see some fewer institutions, but I think you're going to see institutions that are going to try new and different things. If you think of institutions offering products, for the most part, most four-year colleges offer the same product. A four-year degree, you started in September, you ended in May, Mm. you take the summers off, you take 15 credits a semester. The products are the same across all these institutions. The only thing that's different is the location you're offering it in. I think over the next five years, and particularly coming out of this pandemic, you're going to see colleges experiment with different things year-round, three-year degrees, uh, what I would call low-residency degrees. We're able to see that now, right? You don't have to be on campus for 15 weeks. Maybe you're only on campus for a couple of weeks, and then you go and work on an internship the other half of the semester. Maybe you take some of your courses online and some face-to-face. I think you're, you're going to see a lot more experimentation coming out of this because I think they're going to be forced to experiment. Out of those experiments, I think you're going to see different price points uh, for those degrees. And as a result, I think some institutions will survive and thrive because they're offering something different. Jeff Salingo is the author of Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. He's the former editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Jeff, thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you. Someone please save us. Up next, our special show about higher ed continues, and it turns out how colleges are dealing, or not dealing, with coronavirus has lessons for everyone. Look, I don't want to absolve students of all responsibility here, but I also think it's the responsibility of you know, school administrators, public health experts, elected officials to take into account human behavior when they make policy decisions. And I think that that has not happened here. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. 